Chapter 12 The next morning my brain was throbbing with far too many thoughts and worries to allow for any productive thinking. I couldn't afford that. Until I knew exactly what was going on and how to stop it, the most important weapon in my arsenal was reason. I needed to clear my head. I got my running clothes on as quietly as I could, but as tired as Butters looked, I could probably have decked myself in a full suit of Renaissance plate armor without waking him. I took Mouse on his morning walk, filled up a plastic sports bottle with cold water, and headed for the door. Thomas stood waiting for me at the SUV, dressed as I was in shorts and a T-shirt. Only he made it look casually chic, whereas I looked like I bought my wardrobe at garage sales. Where's the beetle? he asked. Shop, I said. Someone beat it up. Why? Not sure yet, I said. Feel like a run? Why? he asked. My head's full. Need to move. Thomas nodded in understanding. Where? Beach. Sure, he said. He hooked a thumb at the SUV. What's with the battleship? Billy and Georgia loaned it to me. That was nice of them. Nice and stupid. It won't last long with me driving it. I sighed. But I need the wheels. Come on. It's after dawn, but I still don't want to leave Butters alone for long. He nodded and we got into the SUV. You want to tell me what's going on? God, not until I can blow off some steam running. I hear you, he said, and we remained silent all the way to the beach. North Avenue Beach is one of the most popular spots in town in the summer. On a cloudy morning at the end of October, though, not many folk were about. There were two other cars in the parking lot, probably belonging to the two other joggers moving steadily on the running trail. I parked the SUV and Thomas and I got out. I spent a couple of minutes stretching, though it probably wasn't as thorough as it should have been. Thomas just leaned against the SUV, watching me without comment. From what I've seen, vampires don't seem to have a real big problem with pulled muscles. I nodded to him, and we both hit the running trail, starting off at the slowest jog I could manage. I ran like that for maybe ten minutes before I felt warm enough to pick up the pace. Thomas matched me the whole time, his eyes half-closed and distant. My breathing hit a comfortable stride, hard but not labored. Thomas didn't breathe hard at first either, but my legs are a lot longer than his, and I'd developed a taste for running as exercise over the past few years. I shifted into a higher gear and finally made him start working to keep up with me. We ran down the beach, past the beach house, a large structure built to resemble the top few decks of an old riverboat, giving the impression that the vessel had sunk into the sand of the beach. At the far end of the beach, we would turn and come back. We went all the way down and back three times before I slowed the pace a little and said, So, you want to hear what's going on? Yeah, he said. Okay. There was no one nearby, and by now the sun had risen enough to touch the top of the Chicago skyline behind me. Mavra couldn't have been listening in herself, and it was unlikely any mortal accomplice could either. It was as close to ideal privacy as I was likely to get. I started with the arrival of Mavra's package and told Thomas of the events of the entire evening. You know what we should do, Thomas asked when I was finished. We should kill Mavra. We could make it a family project. No, I said. If we take her out, Murphy will be the one to suffer for it. Yeah, yeah, Thomas said. I'm pretty sure I know what Murphy would have to say about that. I don't want it to come to that, I said. 
Besides, whatever this word of Kemmler is, there are some seriously nasty people after it. It's probably a good idea to make sure they don't get it. Right, Thomas said. So you keep it away from the nasty people so you can give it to the nasty vampire. Not if I can help it, I said. So Murphy gets burned anyway, he asked. I narrowed my eyes. Not if I can help it. How are you going to manage that? I'm working on it, I said. The first step is to find the word of Kemmler, or the whole thing is a bust. How do you do that? The map, I said. I don't think these guys are running around working the major black magic for no reason. I need to check out where they've been and figure out what they're doing. What about Butters? Thomas asked. For now, we keep him behind my wards. I don't know why Gravain wanted him, and until I figure it out, he's got to keep his head down. I doubt Gravain was looking for a polka aficionado, Thomas said. I know. It's got something to do with one of the bodies at the morgue. So why not go there? Thomas asked. Because the guard was killed there. There's blood all over the place. Maybe the guard's body. And God only knows what Gravain did to the place after we left. The cops will have it locked down hard by now, and they'll definitely want to have a nice long talk with anyone who might have been there. I can't afford to spin my wheels in an interrogation room right now. Neither can Butters. So ask Murphy to look around, Thomas said. I ground my teeth together for a few steps. I can't. Murphy's on vacation. Oh, he said. I'm watering her plants. Right. While she's in Hawaii. Uh-huh, he said. With Kincaid. Thomas stopped running. I didn't. He caught up to me a hundred yards later. Well, that's a bitch. I grunted. I think she wanted me to tell her not to go, I said. I think that's why she came to see me. So why didn't you? he asked. Didn't realize it until it was too late. Besides, she's not my girlfriend, or anything. Not my place to tell her who she should see. I shook my head. Besides, I mean, if it was going to be right with Murphy, it would have been right before now, right? If we got all involved and it didn't work out, it would really screw things up for me. I mean, most of my living comes from jobs for S.I. That's real reasonable and mature, Harry, Thomas said. It's smarter not to try to complicate things. Thomas frowned at me for a moment. Then he said, You're serious, aren't you? I shrugged. I guess so, yeah. Little brother, he said. I simply cannot get over how stupid you are at times. Stupid? You just told me it was reasonable. Your excuses are, Thomas said. But love isn't. We're not in love. Never gonna be, Thomas said, if you keep being all logical about it. Like you're the one to talk. Thomas's shoes hit the trail a little more sharply. I know what it's like to lose it. Don't be an idiot, Harry. Don't lose it like I did. I can't lose what I haven't ever had. You have a chance, he said, a snarl in his words, and I had the sudden sense that he had come precariously close to violent action. And that's more than I've got. I didn't push him. We got to the end of the trail and moved off it, slowing to walk down the beach, winding down. Thomas, I said, what's wrong with you today, man? I'm hungry.
he said, his voice a low growl. We can hit a McDonald's or something on the way home, I suggested. He bared his teeth. Not that kind of hunger. Oh. We walked a while more, and I said, But you fed just yesterday. He laughed, a short and bitter sound. Fed? No, that woman, that wasn't anything. She looked like she'd just run a marathon. You took from her. I took, he spat the words, but there's no substance to it. I didn't take deeply from her, not from anyone anymore, not since Justine. But food is food, right? I said. No, he said, it isn't. Why? It isn't like that. Then what is it like? There's no point in telling you, he said. Why not? You couldn't understand, he said. Not if you don't tell me, dolt, I said. Thomas, I'm your brother. I want to understand you. I stopped and put my hand on his shoulder, shoving him just hard enough to make him turn to face me. Look, I know it's not working out the way we hoped, but damn it, if you just go storming off every time you get upset about something, if you don't give me the chance to understand you, we're never going to get anywhere. He closed his eyes, frustration evident on his face. He started walking down the beach, just at the edge of what passed for surf in Lake Michigan. I kept pace. He walked all the way down the beach, then stopped abruptly and said, Race me back. Beat me there, and I'll tell you. I blinked. What kind of kindergarten crap is that? His gray eyes flashed with anger. You want to know what it's like? Beat me down the beach. Of all the ridiculous, immature nonsense, I said. Then I hooked a foot behind Thomas's calf, shoved him down to the sand, and took off down the beach at a dead sprint. There's an almost primal joy in the sheer motion and power of running a race. Children run everywhere for a reason. It's fun. Grown-ups can forget that sometimes. I stretched out my legs, still loose from the longer jog, and even though I was running across sand, the thrill of each stride filled my thoughts. Behind me, Thomas spat out a curse and scrambled to his feet, setting out after me. We ran through the gray light. The morning had dawned cold, and even at the lakeside the air was pretty dry. Thomas got ahead of me for a couple of steps, looked back, and kicked his heel, flinging sand in my face and eyes. I inhaled some of it, started gasping and choking, but managed to hook my fingers in the back of Thomas's T-shirt. I tugged hard as he stepped, and I outweigh Thomas considerably. He stumbled again, and choking and gasping, I got ahead of him. I regained my lead and held it. The last hundred yards were the worst. The cold, dry air and sand burned at my throat. That sharp, painful dryness that only a long run and hard breathing can really do to you. I swerved off the sand toward the parking lot, Thomas's footsteps close behind me. I beat him back to the SUV by maybe four steps, slapped the back of the vehicle with my hand, then leaned against it, panting heavily. My throat felt like it had been baked in a kiln, and as soon as I could manage it, I took the keys out of my black nylon sports pouch. There were several keys on the ring, and I fumbled at them one at a time. After the third wrong guess, I had a brief, sharp urge to break the window and grab the bottle of water I'd left sitting in the driver's seat. I managed to force myself to try the keys methodically until I found the right one.
I opened the door, grabbed the bottle, twisted off the cap, and lifted it to ease the parched discomfort in my throat. I took my first gulp, and the water felt and tasted like it had come from God's own water cooler. It took the harshest edge off the burning thirst, but I needed more to ease the discomfort completely. Before I could swallow again, Thomas batted the water bottle out of my hand. It arched through the air and landed on the sand, spilling uselessly onto the beach. I spun on Thomas, staring at him in surprised anger. He met my gaze with weary gray eyes and said, It's like that. I stared at him. It's exactly like that. His expression didn't change as he went around and got into the SUV on the passenger side. I stayed where I was for a moment, trying to ignore my thirst. It was all but impossible to do so. I thought about living with that discomfort and pain, hour after hour, day after day, knowing that all I had to do was pick up a vessel filled with what I needed and empty it to make me feel whole. Would I be able to content myself with a quick splash of relief now and then? Would I be able to take enough to keep me alive? For a time, perhaps. But time itself would make the thirst no easier to bear. Time would inevitably weigh me down. It would become more difficult to concentrate and to sleep, which would in turn undermine my self-control, which would make it more difficult to concentrate and sleep. A vicious cycle. How long would I be able to last? Thomas had done it for most of a year. I wasn't sure I would have done as well in his place. I got into the SUV, closed the door, and said, Thank you. My brother nodded. What now? We go to 7-Eleven, I said. Drinks are on you. He smiled a little and nodded. Then what? I took a deep breath. The run had helped me clear some of the crap out of my head. Talking to my brother had helped a little more. Understanding him a little better made me both more concerned and a bit more confident. I had my head together enough to see the next step I needed to take. The apartment. You keep an eye on Butters, I said. I'm hitting these spots on the map to see what I can find. If I can't turn up anything on my own, I might have to go to the Never Never for some answers. That's dangerous, isn't it? He said. I started the car and shrugged my shoulder. It's a living... Chapter 13 I took a shower, got dressed, and left Thomas behind with the still-sleeping butters. Thomas settled down on the couch with a candle, a book, and an old U.S. cavalry saber he'd picked up in an estate sale and honed to a scalpel's edge. I left the sawed-off shotgun on the coffee table within arm's reach, and Thomas nodded his thanks to me. Keep an eye on him, I asked. Thomas turned a page. Nothing will touch him. Mouse settled down on the floor between Butters and the door and huffed out a breath. I got into the SUV and got out Mort's map. I headed for the nearest magical hotspot marked in bloody ink on the map, the spot of sidewalk on Wacker. It was a bitch to find a parking place. It's never easy in Chicago, and I had a shot at a pretty good spot on the street— but while the Beetle would have managed just fine, the SS Loner would have had to smash cars on either side a few inches apart to fit. I wound up taking out a mortgage to pay for a parking space at a garage, 
walked a couple of city blocks, and proceeded down the street with my wizard senses alert, feeling for the dark energy that the city's dead had found. I found the spot on the sidewalk outside of a corner pharmacy. It was so small I had walked almost completely through it before I felt it. It felt almost like walking into air conditioning. The residual magic felt cold, like the other dark power I'd touched, terribly cold, and my skin erupted in goosebumps. I stopped on the spot, closed my eyes, and focused on the remaining energy. It felt strange, somehow. Dawn had dispersed most of the energy that had been there, but even as an aftertaste of the magic that had been worked there, the cold was dizzying. I'd felt dark power similar to this before today, similar but not identical. There was something about this that was unlike the horrible aura surrounding Gravain, or that I had sensed from wielders of black magic in my past. This was undeniably the same power, but it somehow lacked the greasy, nauseating sense of corruption I'd felt before. That was all I could sense. I frowned and looked around. There was a spot on the sidewalk that might have been a half-cleaned bloodstain, or might have been spilled coffee. Around me, business day commuters came and went, some of them pausing to give me annoyed glares. Cars purred by on the street. I checked at the pharmacy, but the place had been closed the night before, and no one had been there or heard about anything out of the ordinary. I checked the neighboring places of business, but it was a part of town where not much was open after six or seven in the evening, and no one had seen or heard about anything out of the ordinary. Most of the time the investigation business is like that. You do a lot of looking and not finding. The cure for it is to do more looking. I walked back to the SUV and went to the next spot on the map at the Field Museum. The Field Museum is on Lakeshore Drive and occupies a whole block north of Soldier's Field. I felt a brief flash of gratitude that things usually went to hell during the work week. If this had been a Sunday with the bears at home, I'd have had to park and then backpack in from Outer Mongolia. As it was, I got a spot in the smaller parking lot in the same block as the museum, which cost me only a portion of the national gross income. I walked to the entrance from the parking lot and slowed my steps for a few strides. There were two patrol cars and an ambulance parked outside the Field Museum's main entrance. Aha! Uh -huh. This stop looked like it might be a bit more interesting than the last one. The doors had just opened for normal visiting hours, and it cost me yet more of my money to get a ticket. My wallet was getting even more anorexic than usual. At this rate, I wouldn't be able to afford to protect mankind from the perils of black magic. Hell's bells, that would be really embarrassing. I went in the front entrance. It's impressively big. The first thing my eyes landed on was the crown jewel of the Field Museum. Sue, the largest, most complete, and most beautifully preserved skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex ever discovered. They're the actual petrified bones, too. None of this cheap plastic modeling crap for the tourists. The museum prided itself on the authenticity of the exhibit, and with reason. There's no way to stand in Sue's shadow to see the bones of the enormous hunter, its size, its power, its enormous teeth, without feeling excruciatingly edible. Late October is not the museum's high-traffic season, and I saw only a couple of other visitors in the great entrance hall. 
Museum security was in evidence, a couple of men in brown quasi-uniforms, and an older fellow with graying hair and a comfortable-looking suit. The man in the suit stood next to an unobtrusive doorway, talking to a couple of uniformed police officers, neither of whom I recognized. I moseyed over closer to the three of them, casually browsing over various exhibits, until I could get close enough to listen in. Damnedest thing, the old security chief was saying. Never would have figured that this kind of business would happen here. People are people, said the older of the two cops, a black man in his forties. We can all get pretty crazy. The younger cop was a little overweight and had a short haircut the color of steamed carrots. Sir, do you know of anyone who might have had some kind of argument with Mr. Bartlesby? Doctor, the security man said. Dr. Bartlesby. Right, said the younger cop, writing on a notepad. But do you know of anyone like that? The security man shook his head. Dr. Bartlesby was a crotchety old bastard. No one liked him much, but I don't know of anyone who disliked him enough to kill him. Did he associate with anyone here? He had a pair of assistants, the security chief replied. Grad students, I think. Young woman and a young man. They a couple? the younger cop asked. Not that I could tell, the security chief said. Names? the older cop asked. Alicia Nelson was the girl. The guy was uh, Chinese or something. Lee Sean or something. Does the museum have records on them? The cop asked. I don't think so. They came in with Dr. Bartlesby. How long have you known the doctor? The older cop asked. About two months, the security chief said. He was a visiting professor doing a detailed examination of one of the traveling exhibits. It's already been taken down and packed up. He was due to leave in a few more days. Which exhibit? The young cop asked. One of the Native American displays, the security man supplied. Cahokian artifacts. Co-what? The older cop asked. Cahokian, the security chief said. Amarin tribe that was all over the Mississippi River Valley seven or eight hundred years ago, I guess. Were these artifacts valuable? Asked the older cop. Arguably, the security chief said, but their value is primarily academic. Pottery shards, old tools, stone weapons, that kind of thing. They wouldn't be easy to liquidate. People do crazy things, the young cop said, still writing. If you say so, the security chief said. Look, fellas, the museum would really like to get this cleared up as quickly as possible. It's been hours already. Can't we get the remains taken out now? Sorry, sir, the older cop said. Not until the detectives are done documenting the scene. How long will that take? the security chief asked. The older cop's radio clicked, and he took it off his belt and had a brief conversation. Sir, he told the security chief, they're removing the body now. Forensics will be over in a couple of hours to sweep the room. Why the delay? the chief asked. The cop answered with a shrug. But until then, I'm afraid we'll have to close down access to the crime scene. There are a dozen different senior members of the staff with offices off of that hallway, the security chief protested. I'm sure they'll finish up as quickly as they can, sir, the cop said, though his tone brooked no debate. Told my boss I'd give it a try, the chief sighed. You want to come explain it to him? Glad to, the cop said with a forced smile. Lead the way. The two cops and the security chief strode off together, 
presumably to talk to somebody with an office, a receptionist, and an irritatingly skewed perspective on the importance of isolating a crime scene. I chewed on my lip. I was pretty sure that the apparent murder the cops were talking about and my hot spot of dark magic had to be related to each other. But if the hot spot was located on a murder site, it would be shut away from any access. Forensics could spend hours, even days, going over a room for evidence. That meant that if I wanted to get a look around, I had to move immediately. From what the cops had said, forensics wasn't there yet. The men moving the body were part of the new civilian agency the city government was employing to transport corpses around town, judging from the ambulance outside. Both cops were with the security chief, which would mean that at most there was maybe a detective and a cop at the crime scene. There might be a chance that I could get close enough to see something. It took me about two seconds to make up my mind. The minute the security chief was out of sight, I slipped through the nondescript doorway, down a flight of stairs, and into the plain and unassuming hallways meant for the field museum's staff instead of its visitors. I passed a small alcove with a fridge, a counter, and a coffee machine. I picked up a cup of coffee, a bagel, a newspaper, and a spiral notebook someone had left there. I piled up everything in my arms and tried to look like a bored academic on his way to his office. I had no clue where I was going yet, but I tried to walk like I knew what I was doing, reaching out with my arcane senses in an effort to feel where the remnants of the hot spot might be. I chose intersections methodically, left each time. I hit a couple of dead ends, but tried to keep close track of where I was going. The complex of tunnels and hallways under the field museum can swallow a small army without needing a glass of water, and I couldn't afford to get lost down there. It took me fifteen minutes to find it. One hallway had been marked with crime scene tape, and I homed in on it. Even before I turned down the hall, my senses prickled with uneasy cold. I'd found my hot spot of necromantic energy, and there was a murder scene at its center. I heard footsteps and slipped to one side, remaining still as a pair of cops in suits came out, arguing quietly with each other about the shortest path outside so that they could smoke. They'd been cooped up with the body, taking pictures and documenting the scene since before any place had been open for breakfast, and neither one of them sounded like he was in a good mood. "'Rollins,' said one of them into his radio, "'where the hell are you?' "'Talking to some administrator.' came a reply, the voice of the older cop from upstairs. How soon can you get down here to watch the site? Give me a few minutes. Damn it, cursed the other detective. Bastard is doing this on purpose. The one with the radio nodded. Screw this. I've been on duty since noon yesterday. We've got the scene documented. It'll keep for two minutes while he walks his slow ass down here. The other detective nodded his agreement, and they left. I set my props aside and slipped under the tape and down the hallway. There were office doors every couple of steps, all closed. At the end of the hall, a door stood open, the lights on. I might have only a few minutes, and if I was going to learn anything, it had to be now. I hurried forward. There might not have been a body there anymore, but even before I saw it, the room stank of death. It's an elusive scent, something that you get as a bonus to other smells— rather than a distinctive smell of its own. The thick, sweet odor of blood was in the air, mixed in with the faint stench of awful. There was a musty, moldy smell of old things long underground, too, as well as a few traces of something spicier, maybe some kind of incense. 
The death scent was mixed all through it, something sharp and unnerving, halfway between burned meat and cheap ammonia-based cleaner. My stomach rolled uncomfortably, and the rising sense of dark energy didn't help me keep it calm. The office was a fairly large one. Shelves and filing cabinets lined the walls. Three desks sat clumped together in the middle of the room. A small refrigerator sat in the corner, near an old couch and coffee table, littered with mostly empty boxes of Chinese takeout and a laptop computer. Books and boxes filled the shelves. The desks were cluttered with books, notebooks, folders, and a few personal articles. A novelty coffee mug, a couple of picture frames, and some recent popular novels. Everything had been splattered with blood and dark magic. The blood had dried out, and most of it was either red-black or dark brown. There was a large pool on the floor between the door and the nearest desk, dried into a sticky sludge. A sharp, almost straight line marked where the corpse had been lifted, probably peeling up the hem of a jacket or coat from where it had been stuck to the floor. Droplets had splattered the walls, the desk, the photographs, the novels, and the novelty mugs. I hated blood. As a decorating theme, it left something to be desired, and it smelled horrible. My stomach twisted again, and I fought to keep down the donuts I'd grabbed at the convenience store. I closed my eyes and then forced myself to open them again, to look. The only way to avoid more scenes like this was to look at this one, figure out who had done it, and then go stop them from doing it again. I pushed my revulsion away and focused on the scene, searching for details. There were a few smears of blood on the floor, but none on the sides, surface, or edge of the nearest desk. That meant that the victim hadn't moved much after he'd gone down. Either he'd been held down, or he'd bled out so quickly that he hadn't had time to crawl toward the nearest phone on the desk to call for help. I looked up. There wasn't much blood on the ceiling. That didn't prove anything, but if someone had opened his throat, there would almost certainly have been blood sprayed all over it. Any other kind of bleeding wound would probably have left the victim, evidently Dr. Bartlesby, able to function, at least for a couple of minutes. He'd probably been held down. I looked down. There was part of a footprint in blood on the floor, leading away. It looked like part of the heel of an athletic shoe, and not a large one either. Probably a woman's shoe, or a large child's. For the sake of my ability to sleep at night, I hoped it was an adult shoe. Children shouldn't see such things. Then again, who should? On an entirely different level, the room was even more disturbing. The dark power here was not the pure, silent cold I'd felt on the sidewalk on Wacker. It felt corrupt, dark, somehow mutilated. There was a sense of malicious glee to the residue of whatever magic had been worked here. Someone had used their power to murder a man, and they had loved doing it. Worse, it was a distinctly different aura than I had felt near either Cowell or Gravain. Magical workings didn't leave behind an exact fingerprint that could be traced to a given wizard, but intuition told me that this working had been sloppier and more frenetic than something Gravain would have done, and messier than Cowell would prefer. But it was strong. Stronger magic than almost anything I had ever done. 
Whoever was behind the spell that had been wrought here was at least as powerful as I was. Maybe stronger. Huh, drawled a voice from behind me. I thought that was you. I stiffened and turned around. The older of the two cops from upstairs stood ten feet down the hall from me, one hand resting casually on the butt of his sidearm. His dark face was wary, but not openly hostile, and his stance one of caution, but not alarm. The name tag on his jacket read Rawlins. Thought who was me? I asked him. Harry Dresden, he said. The wizard, the guy Murphy hires for S.I. Yeah, I said. I guess that's me. He nodded. I saw you upstairs. You didn't look like a typical museum patron. It was the big leather coat, wasn't it? I said. That helped, Rollins acknowledged. What are you doing down here? Just looking, I said. I haven't gone into the room. Yeah, you can tell that from how I haven't arrested you yet. Rollins looked past me into the room, and his expression sobered. Hell of a thing in there. Yeah, I said. Something don't feel right about it, he said. Just, I don't know, sets my teeth on edge, more than usual. I've seen knife-ins before. This is different. Yeah, I said, it is. Dark eyes flicked back to me and the old cop exhaled. <sighs> this is something from down S.I.'s way? Yeah, he grunted. Murphy send you? Not exactly, I said. Why are you here, then? Because I don't like things that put cops' teeth on edge, I said. You guys have any suspects? For someone who just happened to be walking by, you got a lot of questions, he said. For a beat cop in charge of securing the scene, you were asking plenty of your own, I said. Upstairs, with museum security. He grinned, teeth very white. Shoot, I've been a detective before, twice. I lifted my eyebrows. Busted back down? Both times, on account of I have an attitude problem, Rollins said. I gave him a lopsided smile. You going to arrest me? Depends, he said. On what? On why you're here. He met my gaze directly, openly, his hand still on his gun. I didn't meet his eyes for very long. I glanced over my shoulder, debating on how to answer, and decided to go with a little sincerity. There are some bad people in town. I don't think the police can get them. I'm trying to find them before they hurt anyone else. He studied me for a long minute. Then he took his hand off the gun and reached into his coat. He tossed me a folded newspaper. I caught it and unfolded it. It was some kind of academic newsletter, and on the cover page was a photograph of a portly old man with sideburns down to his jaw, together with a smiling young woman and a young man with Asian features. The caption under the picture read, Visiting Professor Charles Bartlesby and his assistants, Alicia Nelson, Lee Xion, prepare to examine Cahokian Collection at the FMNH Chicago. That's the victim in the middle, Rollins said. His assistants shared the office with him. They have not been answering their cell phone numbers and are not in their apartments. Suspects? I asked. He shrugged. Not many people murder strangers, he said. They were the only ones in town who knew the victim. Came in with them from England somewhere. I looked from the newsletter up to Rollins and frowned. Why are you helping me? He lifted his eyebrows. Helping you? 
You could have found that anywhere, and I never saw you. Understood, I said. But why? He leaned against the wall and folded his arms. Because when I was a young cop, I went running down an alley when I heard a woman scream. And I saw something. Something that... His face became remote. Something that has given me bad dreams for about thirty years. This thing strangling a girl. I push it away from her, empty my gun into it. It picks me up and slams my head into a wall a few times. I figured Mama Rollins's baby boy was about to go the way of the dodo. What happened? I asked. Lieutenant Murphy's father showed up with a shotgun loaded with rock salt and killed it. And when the sun comes up, it burns this thing's corpse like it had been soaked in gasoline. Rollins shook his head. I owed her old man. And I've seen enough of the streets to know that she's been doing a lot of good. You've been helping her with that. I nodded. Thank you, I told him. He nodded. Don't really feel like losing my job for you, Dresden. Get out before someone sees you. Something occurred to me. You heard about the Forensic Institute? He shrugged at me. Sure, every cop has. I mean, what happened there last night? I said. Rollins shook his head. I haven't heard of anything. I frowned at him. A grisly murder at the morgue would have been all over the place, in police scuttlebutt if not in the newspapers. You haven't? Are you sure? Sure, I'm sure. I nodded at him and walked down the hallway. Hey, he said. I looked over my shoulder. Can you stop them? Rollins asked. I hope so. He glanced at the bloodied room and then back at me. All right. Good hunting, kid. Chapter 14 Wow, Butters said, fiddling with the control panel on the SUV. This thing has everything. Satellite radio stations. And I bet I could put my whole CD collection inside the changer on this player. And, oh, cool, check it out. It's got an onboard GPS, too, so we can't get lost. Butters pushed a button on the control panel. A calm voice emerged from the dashboard. Now entering Helsinki. I arched an eyebrow at the dashboard and then at Butters. Maybe the car is lost. Maybe you're interfering with its computer, too, Butters said. You think? He smiled tightly, checking his seatbelt for the tenth time. Just so we're clear... I have no problems with hiding, Harry. I mean, if you're worried about my ego or something, don't. I'm fine with the hiding. Happy, even. I pulled off the highway. The green lawns and tended trees of the industrial park hosting the Forensic Institute appeared as the SUV rolled up the ramp. Try to relax, Butters. He jerked his head in a nervous, negative shake. I don't want to get killed. Or arrested. I'm really bad at being arrested. Or killed. It's a calculated risk, I said. We need to find out what Gravain wanted with you. And we're taking me to work. Why? Think about it. What would have happened if they found you missing, blood all over the place, the building ransacked, and Phil's corpse lying in the morgue or on the lawn outside? Someone would have gotten fired, Butters said. Yeah, and they would have locked down the building to search for evidence. And they would have grabbed you and locked you away somewhere for questioning, at least. So... Butters asked. If Gravain cleaned up what happened at the morgue, it means he didn't want too much official attention focused there. Whatever he wants from you, I'm betting it's still in the building. I pulled into the industrial park. We have to find it. 
Eduardo Mendoza, he asked me. Offhand, I can't think of any other reason for someone to want to grab your friendly neighborhood assistant medical examiner, I said. Gravain's got to be interested in a corpse at the morgue, and that one was the only one that seemed a little odd. Harry, Butters said, if this guy really is a necromancer, a wizard of the dead, then why the hell would he need a plain old vanilla science nerd like me? That's the $64,000 question, I said, and we have another reason, too. The museum doctor guy, right? Butters asked. I nodded at him and parked in the lot next to Butters' ruined little truck. Right. I need to know what killed him. Hell, any information could be useful. Butters exhaled. <sighs> well, I don't know what I'll be able to manage. Anything is more than I have now. He looked around warily. Do you think... Do you think Gravain or his buddy is out there right now? Watching for... You know, me? I pulled open my coat and showed Butters my shoulder holster and gun. Then I reached behind me and drew out my staff from the back of the SUV. If they show up, I'm going to ruin their whole day. He chewed on his lip. You can do that, right? I took a look around and said, Butters, trust me. If there's one thing I'm good at, it's ruining people's day. He let out a nervous little laugh. <laughs> you can say that again. If there's one thing I'm good at, I began. Butters punched me lightly on the arm, and I smiled at him. We'll get in and out as quick as we can, get you back under cover. I think we've got it under control. I killed the SUV's ignition and pulled out the key. The truck shuddered, and a warbling, wailing sound came from the dashboard. For a second, I expected someone to shout, Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Instead, there was a hiccup of sound from the truck, and then a smooth, recorded voice reporting, Warning! The door is ajar. The door is ajar. I blinked at the dashboard. It repeated the warning several more times, getting a little slower and lower pitched each time, then droned into a basso rumble, followed by silence. That was not an omen, I said firmly. Right, Butters replied in a faint voice, because stuff is always messing up around you. Exactly, I said. I tried to think of a way to wring positive spin from that last statement, but I wasn't up to the mental gymnastics. Come on, the sooner we get moving, the sooner we get you out of here. Okay, he said, and the pair of us got out of the SUV and headed for the Forensic Institute. As we approached the door, I started limping and leaning on my staff a little, as if I needed the support. Butters opened the door for me, and I hobbled in with a pained expression on my face as we approached the security desk. I didn't know the guard on duty. He was in his mid-twenties and looked athletic. He watched us coming, squinting a little, and when we were well inside, his eyebrows lifted. Dr. Butters, he said, evidently surprised. I haven't seen you in a while. Casey, Butters said, giving him a jerky nod of the head. Hey, I like the new haircut. Is uh, Dr. Brioche in? He's working now, Casey said. Room one, I think. What are you doing here? Hoping to avoid a lecture. Butters replied dryly. He clipped his identification to his coat. I forgot to file some forms, and if I don't get them done before the mail goes out, Brioche will scold me until my eyes bleed. Casey nodded and looked me over. Who's this? Harry Dresden, Butters said. He's got to sign off on the forms. He's a consultant for the police department. Harry, this is Casey O'Rourke. Charmed, I said, 
and handed him the laminated identification card Murphy had issued me to get me through police lines to crime scenes. As I did, I felt another cold pocket of dark energy. Gravain had murdered and then reanimated Phil while the poor guy was sitting at his desk. Casey examined the card, checked my face against the picture on it, and passed it back to me with a polite smile. You want me to tell Dr. Brioche you're here, Dr. Butters? Butters shuddered. Not particularly. Right, Casey said and waved us past. We were almost out of the entry hall when he spoke again. Doctor, did you see Phil this morning? Butters hesitated for a second before he turned around. He was there at the desk the last time I saw him, but I had to leave for an early dentist appointment. Why? Oh, he wasn't at the desk when I got here, Casey said. Everything was locked down, and the security system was armed. Maybe he had somewhere to be, too, Butters suggested. Maybe, Casey agreed. There was a faint frown line between his eyes. He didn't tell me anything, though. I mean, I'd have to come in early if he had an appointment or something. Beats me, Butters said. Casey squinted at Butters and then nodded slowly. Okay. I just wouldn't want him to get in trouble over breaking protocol. You know Phil. Butters said. Casey rolled his eyes and nodded, then went back to filling out some kind of paperwork. Butters and I slipped away from the entry hall and down to Butters' usual examination room. The place had been put back together. His desk rested in its usual spot, piled with papers and his computer. Whoever had cleaned up the room had done a fairly good job of it. Casey knows something, Butters said the minute the door was shut. He suspects something. That's what they pay security to do, I said. Don't let it rattle you. Butters nodded, looking around the examination room. He walked over to his polka suit, still piled in the corner. At least they didn't wreck this, he said. Then he let out a short laugh. Man, are my priorities skewed or what? Everyone has something they love, I said. He nodded. Okay, so what do we do now? First things first, I said. Can you get a look at Bartlesby's corpse? Butters nodded and walked over to his computer. I backed up and stood against the wall. Butters started the thing up and spent a minute or two waggling a mouse and stabbing at keys with his forefinger. Then he whistled. Wow. Bartlesby's body got here about an hour ago, and it's been flagged for immediate examination. Brioche is doing it. Is that unusual? I asked. He nodded. It means someone really wants to know about the victim. Someone in government or law enforcement, maybe. He wrinkled up his nose. Plus, it was pretty horrific. Brioche will get some press out of it. Of course he took this one for himself. Can you get to it? I asked. Butters frowned and tapped a few more keys. Then he looked up at the clock. Maybe. Brioche is working in room one right now, but he's got to be almost finished with whatever he's doing. Bartlesby's corpse is in room two. If I hurry... He stood up and scurried for the door. Wait here. You sure? I asked him. He nodded. Someone really would get suspicious if they saw you roaming around. If I need you, I'll give you a signal. What signal? I'll imitate the scream of a terrified little girl, he said with a waggle of his eyebrows. He headed out the door. Back in a minute. Butters wasn't gone long, and he slipped back into the room before five minutes had passed. He looked a little shaky. You all right? I asked. He nodded. Couldn't stay there for long. I heard Brioche come out of room one. You see the body? Yeah, Butters said with a shudder.
It was already stripped and laid out. Bad stuff, Harry. He had thirty or forty stab wounds in his upper thorax. Someone carved his face up, too. His nose, ears, eyelids, and lips were in a sandwich baggie next to his head. He took a deep breath. Someone had sliced off the quadriceps on both legs. They were missing, and he'd been eviscerated. I frowned. How? A uh, big X shape cut across his abdomen. Then they peeled him open like a Chinese takeout box. He was missing his stomach and most of his intestines. There might have been other organs gone, too. Yick, I said. Extremely. Could you see anything else? No. Even if I wanted to, there wasn't time for more than a quick look. He walked over to a rolling stand of medical instruments. Why would someone do that to him? What possible purpose could it have served? Maybe some kind of ritual, I said. You've seen that before. Butters nodded. He went through the motions of pulling on an apron, mask, gloves, cap, the works. I still don't get it, you know? I did know. Butters didn't have it in him to comprehend the kind of violence, hatred, and bloodlust that had fallen upon the late Bartlesby. That kind of utter disregard for the sanctity of life simply didn't exist in his personal world, and it left him at a total loss when confronted with it face to face. Or, I said, a thought occurring to me, it might have been something else. Anthropomancy. He walked over to one of the freezers and cracked it open. What's that? An attempt to divine the future or gain information by reading human entrails. Butters turned to me slowly, his face sickened. You're kidding. I shook my head. It's possible. Does it work? he asked. It's extremely powerful and dangerous magic, I answered. Anyone who does it has to kill someone and gets an immediate death sentence if the council learns of it. If it didn't work, no one would bother. Butters' mouth hardened into a firm line. That's really wrong. He frowned over the sentence and then nodded. Wrong? I agree. He turned back to the freezer, checked a toe tag, and then hauled a rolling exam table over to it. This might take me a little while, he said. An hour and a half, maybe more. You want a hand with that? I asked. I hoped he didn't. Butters, bless him, shook his head. He walked over to his desk and flicked on his CD player. Polka music filled the room. I'd really rather do this alone. You sure? I asked. Just listen for a girly scream, he said. Can you wait for me up front? I nodded, leaned my staff in the corner, and left him in the room. He locked the door behind me, and I wandered up to sit down in the waiting area near the front doors. I took a chair that put the wall to my back, and where I could see Casey's video monitor, the front door, and the door leading back to the examination rooms. I leaned my head back against the wall, with my eyes mostly closed, and waited. Over the next hour, one doctor came in and another left. The mailman showed up with a day's deliveries, as did the UPS truck. An ambulance arrived with a cadaver of an old woman that Casey rolled away, presumably into storage. Then... A young couple came in. The girl was about five-six and pleasantly pretty, even without much in the way of makeup. She was dressed in sandals, a simple blue sundress, and a wool jacket. Her hair was cut into a bob full of unruly brown curls, and her eyes were bloodshot with fatigue. 
The young man wore a simple, well-cut business suit. He was a little under six feet tall, had Asian features, wire-rimmed glasses, wide shoulders, and wore his hair in a long ponytail. I recognized them. Alicia Nelson and Lee Xian from the picture on the cover of the newsletter Rawlins had given me. Dr. Bartlesby's missing assistants had come to the morgue. I remained very still and tried to think thoughts that would make me blend in with the wall. They walked to the security desk and stood so close to me that I didn't need to bother with listening to them. Good morning, Alicia said, producing a driver's license and showing it to Casey. My name is Alicia Nelson. I'm the late Dr. Bartlesby's assistant. I understand that his remains have been brought here? Casey regarded her without much in the way of expression. Ma'am, we do not make that kind of information available to the public in order to protect the relatives of the deceased. She nodded, drew an envelope out of her purse, and passed that to Casey as well. The doctor had no surviving family or next of kin, she said, but he granted me power of attorney over his estate two years ago. The paperwork is all in order. Casey scanned it, frowning. Hmm. Alicia pushed brown curls wearily from her eyes. Please, sir, the doctor had several personal effects which I need to take into custody as soon as possible. Passwords, credit cards, keys, that sort of thing. They were in his wallet. What's the rush? Casey drawled. Some of his effects could potentially grant a thief access to his accounts and security boxes. As you can see in the documents, he wanted control of them to pass to me until I could arrange to have them passed on to the charities he patronized. Casey folded up the pages again and put them back in the envelope. Ma'am, you're going to have to speak with our director, Dr. Brioche. I'm sure he'll be happy to help you out. All right, Alicia agreed. Is he available? I'll go speak to him, Casey said. If you'll wait here, please. Of course, the girl replied. She waited for Casey to go through the security door and then spun on her heel and stalked over to the entrance, staring out at the morning sunlight. Her posture was stiff with anger. She leaned her forearm on the glass door and pressed her forehead to it. The tall, young man, Li Xian, had remained silent the whole while. He followed her over to the door and spoke in a quiet voice I could scarcely hear. I narrowed my eyes and listened. Back at any moment, Xian murmured. We should sit down. Don't tell me what to do, Alicia shot back in a heated whisper. I'm weary, not idiotic. You should get some rest before you do anything more, Xion said. I don't see why you're playing games. You should have let me follow the guard back. Stop thinking with your stomach, the girl growled. It's bad enough that you lost control without adding a further lack of discipline to the situation. We are not here because I stopped to eat, Xion replied, anger of his own in his whisper. If you hadn't indulged yourself, we wouldn't face this problem. The girl spun from the glass, facing Xion squarely, her face contorted with pride and anger. Your attitude, Li, is making you part of the problem, not part of the solution. The long-haired man went white and cringed back from the girl. His face rippled a sort of slithery motion just beneath the surface of his skin that stretched his features grotesquely, causing a slight sinking of the eyes, a slight elongation of the jaw. He let out a gasp, and when his mouth opened, 
I could see the teeth of a carnivore. It happened for only a second, but I averted my eyes before he might have noticed me watching him. If he had seen me, I would have been in immediate danger. I'd seen a flash of Li Xian's true face. He was a ghoul. Ghouls are preternatural predators who derive their primary sustenance from devouring human flesh. Fresh, cold, rotting, they don't care as long as it gets into their bellies. My stomach turned. Butters said that someone had removed Bartlesby's quadriceps, the long, strong muscles on the front of the thigh. It had been Xian. He'd carved himself stakes from the old man's corpse. If he suspected that I knew what he was, he might decide to protect himself with extreme prejudice, and that would be bad. Ghouls are quick, strong, and harder to kill than a juicy rumor about the president. I'd fought ghouls before, and it wasn't something I wanted to repeat if I could avoid it, especially given that I'd left my staff in Butters' office. Xion recovered his normal appearance and lowered his eyes. He bowed his head to Alicia. Do I make myself clear? the girl whispered. Yes, my lord, Xion replied. Lord? I thought. My mind raced over the possibilities. Alicia exhaled and pressed her thumb against the spot between her eyebrows. Don't talk, Xion. Just don't talk. We'll all be happier and safer. She breezed past him, back to the little waiting area, and sat down. She picked up a copy of Newsweek, sitting out on an end table, and began to flick through it, while Xion remained standing near the door. I pretended to be drowsing. Casey returned a couple of minutes later and said, Miss Nelson, it's going to be a while before Dr. Brioche can see you. How long? she asked, smiling. An hour or so, at least, Casey said. He says that if you'd like to make an appointment for this afternoon, that he'd be glad to s No, she interrupted him, shaking her head firmly. Some of his business is time critical, and I need to recover his effects at the earliest possible opportunity. Please tell him that I will wait. Casey lifted his eyebrows and then shrugged. Yes, ma'am. I blinked my eyes a few times and then sat up straight, stretching. Oh, hey, Casey, I mumbled, standing. I feigned a limp and went to the desk. I left my cane in Butters' office. Would it be okay to go back and grab it? Casey nodded. One second. He picked up the phone, and a second later I heard polka music pumping through the little speaker. Doctor, your consultant friend forgot something in your office. You want me to send him back? He listened, nodding, and then waved me at the door, buzzing me through. I hurried back to Butters' examination room and knocked. Butters unlocked the door to let me in. Hurry, I told him, glancing back down the hall. We've got to go. Butters gulped. What's going on? There are some bad guys here. Gravain? he asked. No, new bad guys, I said. More of them? Butters said. That's not fair. I know. It's getting to be like Satan's reunion tour around here. I shook my head. Is there a back door? Yes. Good. Grab your stuff and let's go. Butters gestured at the exam table. But what about Eduardo? I chewed on my lip. You find out anything? Not a lot, he said. A car hit him. He suffered some pretty massive blunt impact trauma. He died. I frowned and took a few steps toward the corpse. There's got to be more to it than that. Butters shrugged. If there is, I didn't see it. I frowned down at the dead man. He was a painfully skinny specimen. 
His abdomen had been opened with a neat Y incision. There was a lot of blood and disgusting-looking grayish flesh. Broken, jagged bone protruded from the skin of one leg. One hand had been crushed into pulp, and his face looked familiar. I recognized him. Butters, I said. What was this guy's name? Eduardo Mendoza. His full name, I said. Oh, um, Eduardo Antonio Mendoza. Antonio, I said. It's him. It's Tony. Who? Butters asked. Bony Tony Mendoza, I said, excited. He's a smuggler. Butters tilted his head at me. A smuggler? Not like Han Solo, I guess. No, he's a ballooner. What's that? I gestured at his head. He'd done time in a carnival as a sword swallower when he was a kid. He would fill up a balloon with jewels or drugs or whatever other small items he wanted to move around. Then he swallowed the balloon with a string tied to it. Check at the back of his mouth. He'd wedge the string between two of his back teeth and pull the balloon out when the coast was clear. That's silly, Butters said, but he went over to the corpse and pried its jaws open. He adjusted an overhead work lamp on a flexible stand and peered down past Bony Tony's teeth. Holy crap, it's there. He fished around for a few moments while I went back to the door and picked up my staff. I looked back to see Butters drag from the corpse's mouth a yellow-white condom with its end closed and a heavy piece of kite cord knotted around it. What's in it? I asked. Hang on. Butters sliced the condom open with a scalpel and withdrew a small rectangle of dark plastic about the size of a keychain ornament. What is that? I asked him. It's a jump drive, he said, frowning. Oh, what? You plug it into your computer so you can store data on it when you want to move files around to other machines. Information, I said, frowning. Bony Tony was smuggling information. Something Gravane needed to know. Maybe the two out front wanted it too. Maybe that's why he got killed. Ugh, Butters said. Can you read the information? I asked him. Maybe, he said. I can try another machine. Not now, I said. No time. We need to get out of here. Why? Because things have just become a lot more dangerous. They have? Butters chewed on his lip. Why? Because, I said. Bony Tony worked for John Marcone. Chapter 15 Gentleman Johnny Marcone was the most powerful figure in Chicago's criminal underworld. If there was an illegal enterprise afoot, Marcone was either in charge of it or had been paid for the privilege of its operating in his territory. Bony Tony had done most of a dime in a federal penitentiary for trafficking in narcotics, and after that, he'd moved into less politically incorrect areas of the business. He mostly dealt in moving stolen goods, everything from jewels to hot furniture. I wasn't exactly sure where Bony Tony ranked in Marcone's criminal hierarchy, but Marcone wasn't the sort of person who would take the murder of one of his people lightly, not without his approval, at any rate. Marcone would know about Bony Tony's death soon, if he didn't already. He was sure to get involved in one fashion or another, and the best way for him to get to whoever had killed Bony Tony would be to get his hands on whatever it was they wanted. I had to get Butters somewhere safe, the quicker the better. 
But until I knew what was on that storage device, I couldn't judge what would be safe for him and what wouldn't. Harry, Butters said, as if he was repeating himself. I blinked a couple of times. What? Do you want to hang on to this? He said in the same tone. He stepped over to me and offered me the little slip of plastic. No, I snapped and took two steps back. Butters, get that the hell away from me. He froze in place, staring at me, his expression somewhere between confused and wounded. I'm sorry. I took a deep breath. Where the hell was my concentration? This was no time to start spacing out on trains of thought, no matter how relevant to the circumstances. Don't be, I said. Look, that thing doesn't have any moving parts, right? Electronic storage? Yeah. Then I don't dare touch it, I said. Remember how messed up my x-rays were? He nodded. You're saying that the data on here could get messed up the same way. I could never have cassette tapes after I started working magic, I said. They'd just fade away into static after a while. The magnetic strips on my credit card stopped working in a day or two. Butters chewed on his lip and nodded slowly. The data on the jump drive would be even more fragile than a magnetic strip. It might make sense if it was some kind of erratic electromagnetic field around you. Every human body gives off a unique field of electromagnetic energy. It could be like with your cell replication, that your field is more... Butters, I said. No time for that now. The important thing is that I don't dare touch that toy. I frowned, thinking out loud. Or take it back to my place, either. The wards keep magic out, but they keep it in, too. It would probably fry it to hang around in there for too long. Even working any heavy energy around it could be dangerous. Well, that's stupid, Butters said. I mean, storing important wizard information on something that getting close to a wizard would destroy. It's not stupid if you want to sell it to a wizard and you're worried the buyer might off you instead of dealing in good faith, I said. Butters looked at the corpse and then back at me. You think Gravain killed Boney Tony? Yeah, I said. But Gravain knew that he couldn't get to the information on that jump drive on his own. Butters swallowed. Which explains why he needed me. Yeah. I chewed on my lip for a second and then said, Get Boney Tony back in the fridge. We're leaving. Butters nodded and went back to the examining table. He threw the cloth over the corpse. Where? Can you read that thing here? No, Butters said. This computer is too old. It has the wrong ports. We could go to one of the other offices, maybe. No, we need to get out of here. Now. We could go to my place, Butters suggested. No, Gravain will definitely have it under surveillance. Damn it. Why, damn it? We're short on options, and that means we have to go someplace I didn't want to go. Where? he asked. A friend's. Come on. Right, Butters said, and promptly walked over to his polka suit. He heaved up a couple of pieces. The symbols clashed tinnily against one another. What are you doing? I demanded. We've got to go. I'm not leaving it here for God knows what to mess with, Butters said. He grunted and threw a strap awkwardly over his shoulder. The bass drum rumbled. Yes, you are, I said. We're not taking it with us. We don't have time for this. Butters turned to face me, his expression stricken.
That stupid polka suit filled up most of the back of the SUV. It was a pain to move it without making a bunch of noise, but in the end, we managed to slip out the back door of the Forensic Institute and make a clean getaway. I watched the road behind us carefully until I was sure that I wasn't being followed. Then I headed for the campus area and Billy's apartment. I pulled into the apartment's parking lot, leaned out, and yelled, Hey! A young man with arms and legs a few sizes too large to match his body appeared from behind the corner of the building, frowning. He was dressed in sweats, a t-shirt, and boat shoes, standard easily discarded werewolf wardrobe for troubled times. He flipped an untidy mop of black hair out of his eyes and leaned against the SUV's door. Hey, Harry. Kirby, I greeted him. This is my friend, Butters. Kirby nodded to Butters and asked me, Did you spot me? No, but Billy always has someone on watch outside when times are tense. Kirby nodded, his expression serious. What do you need? Park this beast for me. I keep running into things. Sure. Billy and Georgia are upstairs. I got out of the car and Butters hopped out with me. Thanks, man. Yeah, Kirby said. He got in the SUV and frowned. He looked around at all the doors. The door is ajar, the dashboard said. It won't shut up, I explained to him. It gets sort of zen after a while, Butters said brightly. Life is a journey, time is a river, the door is ajar. Kirby gave him a skeptical look. I grabbed Butters by the shoulder and hauled him into the building and up to the apartment. Billy opened the door before we even got to it and looked out expectantly. He stepped a bit to one side, holding the door open for us, watching up and down the hallway. Hey, uh, Harry. The apartment was a typical college place. Small, a couple of bedrooms, nothing permanent on the walls, furniture that wasn't too expensive or hard to move, and equipped with an expensive entertainment center. Georgia sat on the couch reading from one of a small mountain of medical books. I walked in and introduced everyone. I need a computer, I told Billy. He arched an eyebrow at me. I waved a hand in a vague motion. Tell him, Butters. Butters pulled the jump drive from his pocket and showed it to Billy. Anything with a USB port? Georgia frowned and asked, What's on it? I'm not sure, I said. I need to know. She nodded. Better let him use the one on the far wall of the computer room, Will. The farther from Harry, the better. Feel the love, I sighed. I pointed at the little table next to the door and asked, Can I make a few calls while I wait? Sure, Billy turned to Butters. Right this way. They went into one of the bedrooms. Georgia went back to her book. I picked up the phone. The phone in my place rang a dozen times before it rattled, and then Thomas slurred. What? It's me, I said. You all right? I was all right. I was asleep. Stupid mouse woke me up to get the phone. Any sign of visitors? Calls? No and no, he said. Get some more sleep, I said. He made a grunting noise and hung up. I called my answering service next. They had recently phased over to stored voicemail. I was suspicious of it on general principles. From a purely logical standpoint, I knew my issues with technology wouldn't extend all the way across town over the phone lines, but all the same, I didn't trust it. I would much rather have dealt with an actual person taking messages, but it cost too much now to keep someone manning the phones when voicemail could do all the work. 
I punched the buttons and had to go through all the menus only twice to get it to work. Beep! Harry, it's Murphy. We got into Hawaii all right, and there was no problem with the hotel, so you can reach me at those contact numbers. I'll call in again in a couple of... Her voice broke off into a sudden high-pitched noise. Would you stop that? She demanded, with a lot more laughter than anger in her voice. I'm on the phone. In a couple of days, Harry. Thanks for taking care of my pants. Uh, plants. Plants. Beep. I wondered what had caused Murphy to make a high-pitched noise and a big old Freudian slip. And I wondered what to read into the fact that she had left me a message instead of calling me at home. Probably nothing. She probably didn't want to wake me up or something. Yeah, she was probably only thinking of me. Beep! Harry, Mike, the beetle will be ready at noon. Beep! God bless mechanic Mike. If I heard a car complaining about its closed doors being open one more time, I would have to disintegrate something. Beep! Oh, said a young woman's voice. Mr. Dresden, it's Sheila Starr. We met at Bach Ordered Books last night. There was the sound of her taking an unsteady breath. I wondered if I could ask for a few minutes of your time. There have been... I mean, I'm not completely certain, but... I think something is wrong. Here at the store, I mean. She let out a snippet of laughter that was half anxiety and half weariness. Oh, hell... I probably sound crazy, but I would really like to speak to you about it. I'll be at the shop until noon, or you can call my apartment. She gave me the number. I hope you can come by the store, though. I would really appreciate it. Beep! I found myself frowning. Sheila hadn't said it outright, but she had sounded pretty scared. That wasn't terribly surprising, given what she had probably seen happening right outside Bach's shop the night before but it made me feel uncomfortable to hear fear in her voice. Or maybe it's more correct to say that I'm not comfortable with fear in any woman's voice. It's not my fault. I know it's sexist and macho and it's retrograde social evolution, but I hate it when bad things happen to women. Don't get me wrong, I hate bad things to happen to anyone. But when it's a woman that's in danger... I hate it with a reflexive, bone-deep, primal mindlessness that borders on insanity. Women are beautiful creatures, and damn it, I enjoy making sure that they're safe and treating them with old-fashioned manners and courtesy. It just seems right. I'd suffered for thinking that way more than once, but it still didn't change the way I felt. Sheila was a girl, and she was scared. Therefore, if I wanted to have any peace of mind... I was going to have to go talk to her. I checked the clock, 11. She was still at the store. I dialed one more number and got an answering machine with no message, only a tone. This is Dresden, I told the machine, and we need to talk. Butters and Billy reappeared. I hung up the phone and asked them, Well? Numbers, said Billy. More specific, I asked. Butters shook his head. It's hard to be any more specific than that. There was only one file on the jump drive, and it was empty. The only information on it was the file name, and it was just a number. He offered me a piece of white paper with a string of numerals printed on it in his spidery scrawl. I counted. There were sixteen of them. That's it. 
I took the paper and frowned at the numbers. That is spectacularly useless. Yeah, Butters said quietly. I rubbed at the bridge of my nose. Okay, let me think. I tried to prioritize. Gravane was out there looking for Butters. Maybe Marcone was looking for him, too. Maybe the dead professor's two assistants to boot. Butters, we have to get you behind my wards again. He blinked at me. But why? I mean, they wanted me so that they could get to the information. I'm useless to them now. You and I know that. They don't. Oh. Billy, I said, could you please take Butters over to my place? No problem, he said. What about you? Won't you need wheels? The beetle is ready. I'll take a cab. I can drop you off, Billy offered. No, it's the opposite way from my apartment, and Butters needs to get there yesterday. Go around the block once or twice before you pull in. Make sure no one is watching the door. Billy smiled. I know the drill. Don't try to open the door yourself, Butters. Knock and wait for Thomas to do it. Right, Butters fretted at his lip a little. What are you going to be doing? Detective stuff. I have places to go and people to see. And with a little luck, none of them would kill me. Chapter 16 Billy's apartment was only a couple of blocks from Bach ordered books, and while I could have taken a couple of alleys to make the trip even shorter, I kept on the open streets where there were plenty of people. I didn't see anyone following me, but if there was a good enough team on me, or if they were using veils to hide their presence, of course, I might miss them. I kept my staff in my right hand and made sure my shield bracelet was ready in case anyone tried some kind of variant on the old drive-up assassination. I'd survived them before, but the classics never go out of style. I got the box in one piece, and no one so much as glared at me. I felt sort of rejected, but comforted myself with the knowledge that there were at least half a dozen people in town who were sure to keep making my life dangerous. More if you counted Mavra, who technically wasn't a person. Bach didn't open the doors of his store until eleven, so when I went in I was probably the first one to show up for the day. I paused outside the door. Two of the store windows and the glass panel of the door were all gone, replaced by rough sheets of plywood. Bach had gotten off better than the boutique next door. All the glass was gone, doubtless shattered by one kind of flying debris or another during my conversation with Cowell and his sidekick. I went inside. Bach was at his place behind the counter and looked tired. He glanced up at the sound of his door chimes. His expression became something closed and cautious when he saw me. Bach, I said, you here all night? End of the month inventory, he said, his voice careful and quiet. And repairing the windows, what do you need? I looked around the inside of the store. Sheila appeared from behind one of the shelves at the back of the store, looking anxious. She saw me and exhaled a little, then gave me a quiet smile. Just here to talk, I told Bach, nodding toward Sheila. He glanced at her, then back at me, frowning. Dresden. There's something I need to say to you. I arched an eyebrow at him. What's wrong? Look, I don't want to make you upset. I leaned on my staff. Bach, come on. You've known me ever since I came to town. If something's wrong, you aren't going to upset me by telling me about it. 
he folded his thick forearms over his paunch and said, I don't want you coming into my store anymore. I leaned on my staff a little more. Oh, you're a decent enough man. You've never jumped down my throat like the other folks from the council. You've helped people around here. He took a deep breath and made a vague gesture toward the plywood patches on his shop. But your trouble, it follows you around. Which was true enough. I didn't say anything. Not everyone can drop a car on someone who attacks them, Bach went on. I've got a family. My oldest is in college. I can't afford to have the place wrecked. I nodded. I could understand Bach's position. It's terrifying to feel helpless in the face of a greater power, more so than it is painful to be told you aren't wanted somewhere. Look, if you need anything, give me a call. I'll order it or pull it off the shelves for you. Will or Georgia can come pick it up, but... Okay, I said. My throat felt a little tight. Bach's face got red. He looked away from me at the ruined door. I'm sorry. Don't be, I said. I understand. I'm sorry about your shop. He nodded. I'm just here for a minute. After that, I'll go. Right, he said. I walked down the aisles back to Sheila and nodded to her. I got your message. Sheila was wearing the same clothes as the night before, only more rumpled. She'd pulled her hair back and held it in place with a pair of ballpoint pens thrust through a knot at right angles. With her hair like that, it showed the pale, clean lines of her jaw and throat, and I was again struck by the impulse to run my fingers over her skin and see if it was as soft as it looked. She glanced at Bach, then smiled up at me and touched my arm with her hand. I'm sorry he did that. It isn't fair of him. No, it's fair enough. He has the right to protect himself and his business, I said. I don't blame him. She tilted her head to one side, studying my face. But it hurts anyway? I shrugged. Some. I'll survive. The chimes rung at the front of the store as another customer came in. I glanced back at Bach and sighed. <sighs> Look, I don't want to be here very long. What did you need? She brushed back a few strands of hair that had escaped the knot. I... Well, I had a strange experience last night. I lifted my eyebrows. Go on. She picked up a small stack of books and started shelving them as she spoke. After all the excitement, I went back to the inventory in the back room, and Mr. Bach had gone to get the plywood for the windows. I thought I heard the chimes ring, but when I looked, no one was there. Uh-huh, I said. But, she frowned, you know how when you go into an empty house, you know it's empty? How it just feels empty? Sure, I said. I watched her stretch up onto the tips of her toes to put a book away on the top shelf. It drew her sweater up a little, and I could see muscles move under a swath of the pale skin of her lower back. The store didn't feel empty, she said, and I saw her shiver. I never saw anyone, never heard anyone, but I was sure someone was here. She glanced back at me and flushed. I was so nervous I could hardly think straight until the sun came up. Then what? I asked. It went away. I felt a little silly, like I was a scared little kid, or one of those dogs that's staring at something growling when nothing is there. 
I shook my head. Dogs don't just stare and growl for no reason. Sometimes they can perceive things people can't. She frowned. Do you think something was here? I didn't want to tell her that I thought a black court vampire had been lurking unseen in the shop. Hell, for that matter, I didn't particularly want to think about it. If Mavra had been here, there wouldn't have been anything Sheila or Bach could do to defend themselves against her. I think you wouldn't be foolish to trust your instincts, I said. You've got a little talent. It's possible you were sensing something too vague for you to understand in any other way. She put the last book away and turned to face me. She looked tired. Fear made her expression one of sickness, an ugly contortion. Something was here, she whispered. Maybe, I said, nodding. Oh, God. She tightened her arms across her stomach. I... I might be sick. I leaned my staff against the shelf and put a hand on her shoulder, steadying her. Sheila... Take a few deep breaths. It's not here now. She looked up at me, her expression miserable, her eyes wet and shining. I'm sorry. I mean, you don't need this. She squeezed her eyes tightly shut, and more tears fell. I'm sorry. Oh, hell. Tears. Way to go, Dresden. Terrify the local maiden you showed up to comfort. I drew Sheila a little toward me, and she leaned against me gratefully. I put my arm around her shoulders and let her lean against me for a minute. She shivered with silent tears for a little bit, and then pulled herself together. Does this happen to you a lot? She asked in a quiet voice, sniffling. People get scared, I murmured. There's nothing wrong with that. There are scary things out there. I feel like a coward. Don't, I told her. All it means is that you aren't an idiot. She straightened and took a step back. Her face looked a little blotchy. Some women can cry and look beautiful, but Sheila wasn't one of them. She took off her glasses and wiped at her eyes. What do I do if it happens again? Tell Bach. Get somewhere public, I said. Call the cops. Or better yet, call Billy in Georgia. If what you felt really was some kind of predator... They won't want to stick around if they know they've been spotted. You sound as if you've dealt with them before, she said. I smiled a little. Maybe a time or two. She smiled up at me, and it was a grateful expression. It must be very lonely, doing what you do. Sometimes, I said. Always being so strong when others can't. That's, well, it's sort of heroic. It's sort of idiotic, I replied, my voice dry. Heroism doesn't pay very well. I try to be cold-blooded and money-oriented, but I keep screwing it up. She let out a little laugh. You fail to live up to your ideals, eh? Nobody's perfect. She tilted her head again, eyes bright. Are you with someone? Just you. Not with them. With them. Oh, I said. No, not really. If I asked you to come have dinner out with me, would it seem too forward and aggressive? I blinked. You mean, like a date? Her smile widened. You do, you know, like women, right? What? I asked. Oh, yes, yes, I'm down with the women. 
By coincidence, I happen to be a woman, she said. She touched my arm again. And since it seems like I might not get a chance to flirt with you a little more while I'm at work, I thought I had better ask you now. So, is that a yes? The prospect of a date seemed to me like a case of bad timing in several ways, but it also seemed like a good idea. I mean, it had been a while since a girl had been interested in me in a non-professional sense. Well, a human girl, anyway. The only one who even came close was in Hawaii with someone else, giggling and thinking about pants. It might be really nice just to be out talking and interacting with an attractive girl. God knows it would beat hanging around my crowded apartment. It's a yes, I said. I'm kind of busy right now, but... Here, she said. She took a black marker out of a pocket in her sweater and grabbed my right hand. She wrote numbers on it in heavy black strokes. Call me here, maybe tonight, and we'll figure out when. I let her do it, amused. All right. She popped the cap back on the marker and smiled up at me. All right, then. I picked up my staff. Sheila, look, I might not be around this place. I'll respect Bach's wishes. But let him know that if there's any trouble, all he has to do is call me. She shook her head, smiling. You're a decent person, Harry Dresden. Don't spread that around too much, I said, and started for the door. And froze in my tracks. Standing in the little entry area of the bookstore, facing Bach at his counter, were Alicia and the ghoul, Lee Xion. I stepped back to Sheila and pulled her around the corner of a shelf. What is it? she asked. Quiet, I said. I closed my eyes and listened. A simple question, Alicia was saying. Who bought it? I don't keep track of my customers, Bach replied. His voice was polite, but it had an undertone of granite. I'm sorry, but I just don't have that information. A lot of people come through here. Really? Alicia asked. And how many of them purchase rare and expensive antique books from you? You'd be surprised. Alicia let out a nasty little laugh. You really aren't going to volunteer the information, are you? I don't have it to volunteer. Bach said. Both copies of the book were bought yesterday. Both were men, one older and one younger. I don't remember anything more than that. I heard a couple of footsteps, and Li Xian said, Perhaps you need help remembering. There was the distinct heavy click of a pair of hammers on a shotgun being drawn back. Son, Bach said in that same voice, You will want to step away from the counter and leave my shop. Now, it would appear that the good shopkeeper has taken sides on this matter, Alicia said. You're wrong, miss, Bach said. I run this shop. I don't give information. I don't take sides. If I had a third copy, I'd sell it to you. I don't. Both of you leave. Please. I don't think you understand, Alicia said. I'm not leaving here until I have an answer to my question. I don't think you understand, Bach replied. There's a ten-gauge shotgun wired under this counter. It's loaded, cocked, and pointing right at your bellies. Oh, my, 
Alicia said, her voice amused. A shotgun? Gian, whatever shall we do? I ground my teeth. Bach had asked me to stay away, but even so, he was standing there protecting my identity, even though he knew damned well that the two in front of him were dangerous. I checked. The door to the back room of the shop was open. The back door, I said to Sheila in a whisper. Is it locked? Not from this side. Go into the back room and get in the office, I said. Get on the floor and stay there. Now. She looked up at me with wide eyes and then hurried back through the open door. I gripped my staff and closed my eyes, thinking. I patted my duster's pocket. The book was still there, riding along with my forty-four. Ghouls were hard to kill. I had no idea what Alicia was, but I was willing to bet she wasn't a mere academic assistant. For her to command the respect of a creature like Li Xian, she had to be major league dangerous. It would be an extremely foolish idea to assault them. But that didn't matter. If I didn't do something, they were going to get unpleasant at Bach. Bach might not have been a stalwart companion who stuck through thick and thin, but he was what he was, an honest shopkeeper who wanted neither to become involved in supernatural power struggles nor to compromise his principles. If I did nothing, he was going to get hurt while protecting me. I stepped around the shelf and started walking toward the front of the store. Bach sat in his spot behind the counter, one hand gripping its edge in a white-knuckled grasp, the other out of sight below it. Alicia and Li Xian stood in front of it. She looked relaxed. The ghoul was slouched into an eager stance, knees bent a little, arms hanging loosely. Shopkeeper, I will ask you one last time, Alicia said. Who purchased the last copy of Delie der Erlking? She lifted her left hand, and faint heat shimmers rose from her fingers, along with a whisper of dark power. Tell me his name. I drew in my will, lifted my staff, and snarled. Forzare! The runes on the staff burst into smoldering scarlet light. There was a thunderstorm's roar, and raw power, invisible and solid, lashed out of the end of my staff. It whipped across the shop, knocking books from the shelves on the way, and hit the ghoul in the chest. It lifted him off his feet and sent him smashing into the plywood-covered door. He went through the wood without slowing down, out over the sidewalk and into the wall of the building across the street, where he hit with a crunch. Alicia spun toward me, her eyes wide and shocked. I stood with my feet spread. My shield bracelet was on my left hand, thrumming with power and drizzling blue-white sparks. My staff smoldered with a scent of fresh-burned wood, and the scarlet runes shone in the darkness at the back of the store. I pointed it directly at Alicia. His name, I snarled, is Harry Dresden. Chapter 17 You, I snarled, gesturing at Bach with the end of my staff. You little weasel! You were going to sell me out. I ought to kill you right here. From his vantage point above Alicia's curly-haired head, Bach blinked at me in confusion. I stared at him, hard, not daring to leave anything in my expression that the girl would see. If I'd tried to protect Bach, it would only have made it more likely that she would do something to him. 
By appearing to threaten him, it would make him seem more unimportant to the necromancer and her henchmen. It was the best thing I could do to protect him. Bach got it. His expression flickered through several subtle shades of comprehension, fear, and guilt. He twitched his head at me in a nod of thanks. Well, well, Alicia said. She hadn't moved other than to turn toward me. I've never heard of you, but I must admit that you know how to make an entrance, Harry Dresden. I took lessons, I said. Give me the book, she said. Ha, I said. Why? Because I want it, she said. Sorry, it's the hot Christmas present this year, I said. Maybe you can find a scalper in a parking lot or something. She tilted her head, the fingers of her hand still flickering with little shimmers, like heat rising from asphalt. You refuse? Yes, Moppet, I told her. I refuse. I deny thee. No, already. Her eyes narrowed in anger and, well, something happened that I hadn't ever seen before. The store got darker. I don't mean that the lights went out. I mean everything got darker. There was a low, trembling sensation that seemed to make my eyeballs jiggle a little, and the shadows simply expanded up out of the corners and dim areas of the store, like time-lapse photography of growing molds. As they slid over portions of the store, that nasty, greasy sensation of cold came with them. When the shadows washed over an outlet that housed the power cords to a pair of table lamps, the lamps themselves went dim and then died out. They covered the old radio, and Aretha Franklin's voice faded away to a whisper and vanished. The shadows got to the register, and its lights went out. And when they brushed the old ceiling fan, it began to whirl down to a stop. The shadows crept over Bach, and he went pale and started shaking. He thrust one hand down onto the counter, as if he had to do it to keep himself upright. The only place the darkness didn't spread was over me. The shadows stopped in a circle all around me, maybe six inches away from me, and the things I was carrying. The hellfire smoldering in the runes of my staff glowed more brightly in the darkness, and the tiny sparks falling in a steady rain from my damaged shield bracelet seemed to burn away tiny pockets of the darkness where they fell, only to have it slide back in once they had burned away. This was a kind of power I hadn't felt before. Normally, when someone who can sling Major Mojo around draws their stuff up around them, it's something violent and active. I'd seen wizards who charged the air around them with so much electricity it made their hair stand on end. Wizards whose power would gather light into nearly solid gem-shaped clouds that orbited around them. Wizards whose mastery of earth magic literally made the ground shake. Wizards who could shroud themselves in dark fire that burned anyone near them with the raw, emotional rage of their magic. This was different. Alicia's power, whatever it was, didn't fill the store. It emptied it in a way that I didn't think I fully understood. Utter stillness spread out from her. Not peace, for that would have been something tranquil, accepting. This stillness was a horrible, hungry emptiness, something that took its power from being not. It was made of the emptiness of the loss of a loved one, of the silence between the beats of a heart, 
and of the inevitability of the empty void that waited patiently for the stars to grow cold and burn out. It was power wholly different from the burning fires of life that formed the magic I knew, and it was strong. God, it was so strong. I began to tremble as I realized that everything I had wasn't enough to go up against this. I don't like your answer, Alicia said. She smiled at me, a slow and evil expression. She had a dimple on one cheek. Hell's bells, an evil dimple. My mouth felt dry, but my voice sounded steady when I spoke. That's too bad. If you're so upset about not getting a copy, I suggest you take it up with Cowl. She stared at me with no expression for a moment, and then said, You are with Cowl? No, I told her. I was, in fact, forced to drop a car on him last night when he tried to take the book from me. Liar, she said. Had you truly fought Cowl, you'd be dead. Whatever, I replied, my tone bored. I'll tell you what I told him. My book. You can't have it. She pursed her lips thoughtfully. Wait a moment. You were at the mortuary, in the entryway. We call it the Forensic Institute now. Her eyes glittered. You found it. You succeeded where Gravain failed, didn't you? I turned up one corner of my mouth and said nothing. Alicia took in a deep breath. Perhaps we can reach an understanding. Funny, I said. Gravain said the very same thing. Alicia took an eager step toward me. You denied him? I didn't like his hat. You have wisdom for one so young, she said. In the end, he is nothing but a dog mourning his fallen master. He would turn on you in a moment. The gratitude of the Capio Corpus, by contrast, is an eternal asset. Capio Corpus. Roughly translated, the taker of corpses, or bodies. I suddenly had a better idea of why Li Xian had referred to Alicia as my lord. Assuming I want that gratitude, I said, what price would it carry? Give me the book, she said. Give me the word. Stand with me at the Dark Hallow. In exchange, I will grant you autonomy and the principality of your choice when the new order arises. I didn't want her to know that I had no freaking clue what she was talking about, so I said, That's a tempting offer. It should be, she said. She lifted her chin, and her eyes glittered with something bright and utterly confident. The new order will change many things in this world. You have the opportunity to help shape it to your liking. And if I turn you down, I asked. She met my eyes directly. You are young, Harry Dresden. It is a great tragedy when a man with your potential dies before his time. I shied away from her gaze at once. When a wizard looks into another person's eyes for an instant too long... He sees into them in a profound and unsettling kind of vision called a soul gaze. If I'd left my gaze on Alicia's eyes, I would get an up-close and personal look at her soul, and she at mine. I didn't want to see what was going on behind that dimpled smile. I recognized that perfect surety in her manner and expression 
as something more than rampant ego or fanatic conviction. It was pure madness. Whatever else Alicia was, she was calmly and horribly insane. My mouth felt a lot drier. My legs were shaking, and my feet were advising the rest of me to let them run away. I'll have to think about it. By all means, Alicia said. Her face took on an ugly expression, and her voice hardened. Consider it, but take a single step from where you stand, and it will be your last. Killing me might get you a copy of the book, but it won't get you the word, I said. Or did you think I was carrying both of them around with me? Her right hand clenched into a slow fist, and the room got a couple of degrees colder. Where is the word? Wouldn't I like to know, I thought. Wouldn't you like to know, I said. Kill me now and there's no word, no new order. She uncurled her hand. I can make you tell me, she said. If you could do that, you'd have done it by now, instead of standing there looking stupid. She started taking slow steps toward me, smiling. I prefer to attempt reason before I destroy a mind. It is a somewhat taxing activity. Are you sure you wouldn't rather work with me? Gulp. Mental magic is a dark, dark, dark gray area of the art. Every wizard who makes it to the White Council has received training in how to defend against mental assaults, but that was perfunctory at best. After all, the Council made it a special point to wipe out wizards who violated the sanctuary of another's mind. It's one of the laws of magic, and if the wardens caught someone doing it, they killed them. End of story. There was no such thing as an expert at that kind of magic on the White Council, and as a result... The defense training was devised by relative amateurs. Something told me that Alicia the corpse-taker wasn't an amateur. That's close enough, I said in a cold voice. She kept walking, very slowly, a sort of sinuous enjoyment in her stride. Last chance. I mean it, I said. Stay back. Before I could finish the word... She made a rippling gesture with the shimmering fingers of her left hand. There was a whirling sensation, and I was suddenly caught in a gale, a whirlwind that tried to carry me toward the girl. My feet started sliding across the floor. I leaned back with a cry, lifting my shield bracelet, and it blazed into a dome of solid blue light before me. It did nothing, nothing at all. The vicious vortex continued to draw me to her outstretched hand. I started to panic, and then realized what was happening. There was no wind, not physically anyway. The books on the shelves were not stirring, nor was my long leather duster. My shield offered me no protection from a wholly non-physical threat, and I released it, saving my strength. The hideous vacuum wasn't meant for my body. It was targeting my thoughts. That's right, Alicia said. Holy crap, she'd heard me thinking. Of course, young man. Give me what I want now, and I may leave you enough of your mind to feed yourself. I gritted my teeth, marshalling my thoughts, my defenses. It's too late for that, boy. Like hell it was. My thoughts coalesced into a unified whole, 
an absolute image of a wall of smooth gray granite. I built the image of the wall in my mind and then filled it with the power I'd been holding at the ready. I felt a nauseating confusion for a second, and then the mental gale ceased as abruptly as it had begun. Alicia's head jerked as if she'd been slapped across the cheek. I glared at her, teeth gritted, and asked, Is that all you got? Corpse Taker snarled out a spiteful curse, lifted her left arm, and twisted her fingers into a raking claw. There was a hideous pressure against the image of the granite wall in my mind. It wasn't a single resounding blow, as I'd expected from my training, a kind of psychic battering ram. Instead, it was an enormous, steady weight, as if a sudden tide had flooded in to wash the wall away completely. I thought that pressure would ease in a moment, but it only became more and more difficult to bear. I struggled to hold the image of the wall in place, but despite everything I could do, dark and empty cracks began to appear and spread through it. My defenses were crumbling. Delicious, Corpse Taker said, and her voice didn't sound strained at all. After a century, they're still teaching the young ones the same tripe. I saw movement beyond Corpse Taker, and Li Xian appeared in the shattered plywood doorway. Half of his face was lumpy and purpled with bruising, and one shoulder had been smashed grossly out of shape. He was bleeding a thin, greenish-brown fluid and moved as if in great pain. But he came in on his own power, and his eyes were alert. My lord, Xian said, are you well? Perfectly, Corpse Taker purred. Once I have his mind, the rest is yours. His misshapen face twisted into a smile that spread too wide for human features. Thank you, lord. Holy crap, it was time to leave. But my feet wouldn't move. You needn't bother, young wizard, Corpse Taker said. If you take the attention you would need to free your feet, your wall will fail. Just open to me, boy. You will feel less pain. I ignored the necromancer and tried to think of other options. My mental defenses were indeed crumbling but any strength of will I spent to move my legs would collapse the defenses entirely. I had to get the pressure off of me for a moment, only time enough to distract Corpse Taker to give me time to get the hell away. But given that I could barely move at all, my options were severely limited. Part of the wall began to crumble. I felt Corpse Taker's will begin pouring in, the first trickle from a dark sea. If I wanted to live, I had little choice. I reached my thoughts down into the smoldering hellfire burning in the ruins of my staff and sent it flooding into my mind, into the failing wall that protected me. The cracks in the cold gray granite filled with crimson flame, and where the dark sea of Corpse Taker's will pressed against it, there was a screaming hiss of freezing water boiling into a cloud of steam. Corpse Taker let out a sudden, hollow gasp, and the pressure on my thoughts vanished. I spun, wobbled, got my balance, and then ran for the back door. Take him! Corpse Taker snarled behind me. He has the book and the word! There was a sickly, ripping, crackling sound, and Li Xian let out a bestial and inhuman howl. I dashed through the back room of the bookstore and to the back door. 
I slammed its opening bar and sprinted through it out into the alley behind the shop. I heard two sets of feet following me, and Corpse Taker began chanting in a low, growling voice. That hideous pressure began to surge against my thoughts again, but this time I was ready for it, and my defenses fell into place more quickly, more surely. I was able to keep running. I ran down the alley and made it maybe thirty yards before a sudden fire exploded through my right calf. I crashed down to the ground, barely holding on to my mental defenses. I dropped my staff and reached down to my calf to feel something metal and sharp protruding from it. I cut my fingers on an edge and jerked them back. I couldn't get a good look, but I saw a flash of steel and a lot of blood, and Corpse Taker and the ghoul were still coming. There was no way I could have whipped up any magic to stop them, not with all of my power focused on keeping Corpse Taker from invading my mind. I wouldn't be able to overcome the ghoul physically. Even wounded, Xion was quick on his feet and closing the distance fast. I drew the forty-four and sent three shots back down the alley. Corpse Taker darted to one side, but the ghoul never even slowed down. He flung one too-long arm through an arc, and there was a glitter of steel in the gloomy alley. Something hit me in the ribs, nearly hard enough to knock me down, but the spell-covered leather of my duster stopped it from piercing through. A triangle of steel fell to the ground, each point sharpened and given a razor's edge. All I needed, I muttered. Ninja ghouls. I emptied the revolver at Xion. He wasn't ten feet from me on the last shot, and I must have hit him. He jerked, careened off a wall, and stumbled, but he was a long way from down. Corpse Taker's will continued to erode my defenses. I had to get away from her, or she'd open up my brains like a tin of sardines, and then Xion would eat them. The three-pointed shuriken still in my calf, I forced myself to my feet through the screaming pain. I seized my staff, hobbling in earnest this time, and struggled toward the end of the alley. My only chance was to make it to the street, to flag down a cab, somehow beg a ride from a passing car, or maybe get some help. I knew there wasn't much hope of any of those things happening, but it was all I had. I almost got to the end of the alley, the pain in my leg growing steadily worse, and then I abruptly lost track of what was going on. One moment I'd been busy, I knew. I was doing something important. The next, I was just standing there, sort of floundering. Whatever I'd been doing, it was right on the tip of my tongue. I knew that if I could just focus for a second, I'd be able to remember it and get back on track. My leg hurt, I knew that. And my head felt jumbled, the thoughts there but in disarray, as if I'd gone through a drawer of folded laundry, pulled out something from the bottom, and then slapped the drawer shut again without straightening anything up. I heard a snarl behind me and realized that whatever I'd been doing, it was too late to get back on track now. I tried to turn around, but for some reason, I couldn't remember how. I have it, panted a woman's voice behind me. Numbers. It's only... He only has numbers. My lord, snarled a thick, deformed voice. What is your command? He doesn't know where the word is. He's useless to me. The book is in the right pocket of his coat. Take it, Jan. Then kill him. Chapter 18 I was pretty sure the corpse-taker was talking about me. 
and I knew for sure that getting killed was a bad thing. I just couldn't figure out how to go about doing something to stop it. Something about my mind, that it wasn't working right. A battered-looking man entered my field of view, and I was able to turn my head enough to watch him. Oh, crap. It was Lee Xian, the ghoul. I had a bad feeling that he was going to do something unpleasant, but he just stuck his hand in my coat pocket and pulled out the slender copy of Earl King. The ghoul turned away from me and offered the book to someone out of my field of view. There was the sound of flipping pages. Excellent, Corpse Taker said. Take him back from the street and finish him. Hurry. He's stronger than most. I'd rather not hold him all day. Oh, right. Corpse Taker was holding my mind captive. That meant that she was in my head. That meant she had beaten my defenses down. Just pulling those thoughts together made me feel stronger. My head started clearing, and as it did, the pain in my wounded leg grew more intense. Hurry, she said, her voice now strained. Rough hands seized the back of my coat. I wanted to run, but I still couldn't get everything to respond together. An inspiration seized me. If Corpse Taker was in my head, it meant that she could feel everything I was feeling, such as the burning pain in my leg. When the ghoul started pulling me backward, I couldn't struggle, but I managed to twist my hips a little and bend my good knee. I fell over sideways onto the wounded leg. The fall drove the shuriken a little harder into my calf, and the world went white with pain. Corpse Taker shrieked. I heard a metallic clatter, as if she had stumbled into a trash can, and I felt my arms and legs come all the way back under my command. The ghoul stumbled on his mangled leg. He pushed off the wall and came at me. I spun on the small of my back and kicked out hard and straight at his good knee. That's a nasty defensive technique Murphy taught me, and one that doesn't rely upon raw physical power. The ghoul's weight was all on that leg, and the kick connected hard. There was a grinding pop, and he let out a splitting snarl of pain. I scrambled away from him on one leg in the heels of my hands. I could see my blood on the floor of the alley, smeared in a trail from my wounded leg. There were little stars fluttering through my vision, and I felt as weak as a starved kitten. Everything was spinning around so much that I didn't even bother to get to my feet. I crawled out of the cold shadows of the alley, onto the sidewalk, and into broad daylight. I heard someone shout something. There were police sirens a block or two away. They were doubtless heading for Box Place, after someone had seen me throw the ghoul out through the plywood-covered door. Give them two minutes to sort out what was going on, and I'd have men with silver shields and a strong desire to speak to the dead professor's missing assistants all around me. Of course, by then, I'd probably have been dead for a minute and a half. The wounded ghoul, his face twisted, jaws lolling open wide to show yellowed fangs, came shambling out of the alley after me. I heard a woman shout, the sound high and furious and totally unafraid. There was a whooshing sound, a spinning shape, and then an axe, a freaking double-bladed axe, buried itself to the eye in the ghoul's flank. Just as it hit, there was a flash of light from a spot on the blade, so bright that it left a red mark in the shape of a single rune burned into my vision. There was a loud bark of sound as the axe hit the ghoul. 
The creature was thrown forcefully to the sidewalk, and thin, greenish-brown fluid sprayed everywhere in a disgusting shower. A woman in a dark business suit stepped into my line of sight. She was better than six feet tall, blonde, and coldly beautiful. Her blue eyes burned with battle lust and excitement as she drew a sword with a straight three-foot blade from the scabbard at her side. As I watched, she took several smooth steps to place herself between the ghoul and me. Then she pointed the tip of the sword at him and snarled, Avant, Carrion! The ghoul tore the axe from his side and staggered into a crouch, holding the weapon in both hands with a panicked desperation. He took a pair of awkward, shuffling steps back. An engine roared, and a gray sedan swerved up onto the sidewalk. Avant! cried the woman. Then she raised the sword and glided toward the ghoul. Li Xian didn't want any part of it. His inhuman face twisted in recognizable fear. He dropped the axe and fled back down the alley. Coward, the woman sighed, clearly disappointed. She snatched up the axe, then said to me, Get in. I know you, I said. Miss Guard, you work for Marcone. I work for Monarch Securities, the woman corrected me. Her hand clamped down on my arm like a slender steel vice, and she hauled me to my feet without effort. My wounded calf clenched into a nasty cramp, and I could feel the steel blades continuing to cut at my muscles. I clenched my teeth, snarling my defiance at the pain. Guard gave me a quick glance of approval and tugged me toward the gray sedan. I still had to hobble on my staff, but with her help, I made it to the car and fumbled my way into the back seat. More hands pulled me in. The whole time, Guard kept her sharp, cold blue gaze on the alley and the street around us. Once I was in, she shut the door, sheathed the sword, and unclipped the scabbard from her belt before getting into the passenger's seat. The gray sedan pulled out into the street again and started away from the scene. The driver turned his head just enough to catch me in his peripheral vision. His neck was too thick for any more movement than that. He had red hair clipped into a close buzz, shoulders wide enough to build a deck on, and he'd had to get his business suit at the big and tall store. Hendricks, I greeted him. He looked up into the rearview mirror with his beady eyes and glowered. Nice to see you again, too, I said. I settled back into the seat as much as I could, trying to ignore my leg, and refusing to look at the man sitting beside me. I didn't really need to look at him. He was a man a little over average height, somewhere in the late prime of his life, his dark hair flecked with gray. He had skin that had seen a lot of time out in the weather, leaving him with a perpetual boater's tan and eyes the color of wrinkled old dollars. He'd be wearing a suit that cost more than some cars and making it look good. He looked handsome and wholesome, more like the coach of a successful sports team than a gangster. But John Marcone was the most powerful figure in Chicago's criminal underworld. Isn't that a little childish, he asked me, his voice amused, refusing to look at me like that? Indulge me, I said. It's been a long day. How serious is your injury? he asked. Do I look like a doctor to you? I asked. You look more like a corpse, he answered. I squinted at him. He sat calmly in his seat, mirroring me. Is that a threat? I asked. If I wanted you dead, Marcone said. 
I would hardly have come to your aid just now. You must admit, Dresden, that I have just saved your life. Again. I closed my eye again and scowled. Your timing is improbable. He sounded amused. In what way? Coming to my rescue just as someone was about to punch my ticket? You must admit, Marcone, that smells like a setup. Even I occasionally enjoy good fortune, he replied. I shook my head. I called you less than an hour ago. If it wasn't a setup, then how did you find me? He didn't, said Guard. I did. She looked over her shoulder at Marcone and frowned. This is a mistake. It was his fate to die in that alley. What is the point of having free will if one cannot occasionally spit in the eye of destiny? Marcone asked. There will be consequences, she insisted. Marcone shrugged. When aren't there? Guard turned her face back to the front and shook her head. Hubris, mortals never understand. Tell me about it, I said. Everyone makes that mistake but me. Marcone glanced at me and his eyes wrinkled at the corners. It was very nearly a smile. Guard turned her head slowly and gave me a cold glare that wasn't anywhere close to smiling. Let's get to the part of the conversation where you tell me what you want, I said. I don't have time for any more banter. Ah, Marcone said. I suspected you would somehow become involved in the events at hand. What events would those be, I asked. The situation concerning the death of Tony Mendoza. I scowled at him. What do you want? Unless I miss my guess, Marcone said. I want to help you. Yeah. I said, right. I'm quite serious, Dresden, he told me. I allow no one to harm those in my employ. Whoever murdered Mendoza must be chastised immediately, whether or not they happen to be necromancers. I blinked. How did you know what they were? Miss Guard, he replied serenely. She and her colleagues have outstanding resources. I shrugged. Good for you but I'm not interested in helping you maintain your empire. Naturally, but you are interested in stopping these men and women before they accomplish whatever goal it is that they are pursuing. I shrugged. You don't know that. Yes, I do, he said, his tone growing distant and cool. He met my eyes and said, Because I know you. I know that you would oppose them just as you know that I will not permit them to take one of mine from me without punishment. I glared back at him. I wasn't worried about a soul gaze. Those happened only once between any two people, and Marcone had already gotten a look at me. When he said that he knew me, that's what he was talking about. I'd seen his soul in return, and it had been a cold and barren place, but one of order as well. If Marcone gave his word, he kept it and if someone came for one of his people, he would go after them without hesitation, fear, or pity. That didn't make him noble. Marcone had the soul of a tiger, of a predator protecting his territory. It only made him more resolved and more dangerous. I'm not a hit man, I told him, and I don't work for you. Nor am I asking you to, he said. I simply want to give you information that might help you in your efforts. You aren't listening. I am not going to kill anyone for you. 
His teeth suddenly showed, very white against the tan. But you will go up against them. Yes. He settled back in his seat. I've seen what you do to the people who get in your way. I'm willing to take my chances. That thought, that attitude, was a little creepier than I was comfortable with. I wasn't a killer. I mean, sure, sometimes I fought. Sometimes people and not people got killed. But it wasn't as though I was some kind of Jack the Ripper. From time to time, matters got desperately dangerous between me and various denizens of the preternatural world. But I had only killed... I thought about it for a minute. I'd killed more of them than I hadn't. Quite a few more. I felt a little sick to my stomach. Marcone watched me from behind hooded eyes and waited. What do you want to tell me? I asked him. I don't want to waste your time, he said. Ask me questions. I'll answer whichever I can. How much do you know about the deal that got Mendoza killed? He drummed the fingers of his right hand on his thigh for a moment. Mendoza was getting ready to retire, Marcone said. He had a final scheme to complete. I owed the man for loyalties past, and at his request, I allowed him certain liberties. He was selling something independently? Marcone nodded. The contents of an old storage locker. Mendoza had come across the key to it in an estate sale. That was criminal speak for purchasing hot merchandise from a mugger or burglar. Go on. The key opened a storage locker that had been sealed since 1945. It contained a number of works of art, jewelry, and similar cultural artifacts. I arched an eyebrow. Loot from World War II? So Mendoza presumed, Marcone said. He offered me my selection of the contents, and in return, I allowed him to dispose of the rest in whatever manner he saw fit. What did you get out of it? I asked. Two Monets and a Van Gogh. Holy crap, I shook my head. What happened then? Mendoza went about liquidating his cash. It had been in process for several weeks when he reported that one of the people he had approached regarding an antique book seemed to have access to resources that were well beyond the ordinary. Did he give you a name? I asked. A man named Gravane, Marcone said. Mendoza asked for my advice on the matter. And you told them about how wizards are technologically challenged? Among other things, he said, nodding. But the deal went south. So it would seem, Marcone said. Since Mendoza's death, I have asked Miss Gard to collect information on recent events in the local supernatural community. I glanced at the woman and nodded. And she told you there were necromancers running around. Once that had been established, we attempted to narrow down the location of these individuals, particularly Gravain, but met with very limited success. I'm able to find out where they've been, Gard said without turning around, or at least where they've been weaving their spells. And there are a number of hot spots of necromantic energy around town, I said. I know that already. Marcone placed his fingers in a steeple before him. But what I suspect you do not know is that last night, at the location on Wacker, a member of my organization had an altercation with representatives of a rival interest from out of town. 
There was a gunfight. My man was mortally wounded and left for dead. That doesn't add up to necromancy, I said, frowning. What caused the hot spot? That is the question, Marcone said. He took a folded piece of paper from his breast pocket and passed it to me. These are the names of the responding EMTs, he said. According to my man, they were the first on the scene. Did he talk to you before he died? I asked. He did, Marcone replied. In point of fact, he did not die. Thought you said he was mortally wounded. He was, Mr. Dresden, Marcone said, his features remote. He was. He survived. The surgeons at Cook County thought it a bona fide miracle. Naturally, I thought of you at once. I rubbed at my chin. What else has he said? Nothing, Marcone said. He has no memory of the events after he saw the ambulance arriving. So you want me to talk to the EMTs? Why haven't you done it yourself? I asked. He arched his brows. Dresden, try to keep in mind that I am a criminal. For some reason, it's quite difficult to get people in uniforms to open their hearts to me. I gritted my teeth at another agonizing twinge from my leg. Right. So, he said, we're back to my original question. How serious is your injury? I'll make it, I said. Do you think you'll need to see a doctor? If it's too mild a wound, I'll be glad to have Miss Gard make it look more authentic. I looked at him for a moment. I'm heading for an emergency room whether I need it or not, huh? As luck would have it, we are near a hospital. Cook County, in fact. Yeah, the cut's pretty deep. I looked at the piece of paper and then stuck it in my pocket. There's bound to be an EMT or two there. Maybe you should drop me off at the emergency room. Marcone smiled, and it didn't touch his eyes. Very well, Dresden. You have my deepest sympathies for your pain.